All right, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word and study what you have to say to us today. We pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds through your Holy Spirit to really understand what you want to teach us from your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you for your uh, sovereignty over all your creation. We thank you for uh, the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation of your love and Christ Jesus, death on the cross for our sins. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that through that, um, that death and uh, through our salvation in Christ that you've adopted us into your family, that we can be sons and daughters of the King. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise that we have and the hope that we have of joining our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven one day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have, a, we have arrived at uh, part seven. So here we are at part seven, and what we're going to talk about today is that it's not good for the man to be alone. So we've had lots of, it is good, it is good, it's good, it's very, now we get to a passage of scripture that says it's not good. Something is not good. And so God's going to remedy the fact that that is not good. So he creates Eve. So we're going to talk about the creation of Eve today. And we're also going to talk about the institution of marriage, uh, which we see at the end of chapter 2. So this is going to finish off Genesis chapter 2 today. But first, let's do a little review of what we did last time. So last time we we read a couple of passages of Scripture in in, uh, Genesis chapter 2. We got the account of God creating Adam that he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We also got the formation of the Garden of Eden, uh, the fact that God caused specific trees to grow, and and he put this vast variety of trees with fruit in there in the garden, and then also these two special trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life he put also in the garden. Uh, and then we, we learn that God put man to work, that even before the fall, there was work. So work was one thing that was instituted before the fall. We're going to see this other thing uh, that was instituted before the fall of today, which was marriage. Um, so God put him to work. Um, we get uh, the details, of course, in Genesis chapter 2 are the details of things that happened on day 6. In Genesis chapter 1, we get a very cursory uh, description, and then in Genesis chapter 2, we get a more detailed description. Uh, the fact that Adam was made from dust, not from some pre-Adamic ape, uh, but some ape-like creature like evolution says, but it, from inanimate dust he was made. Uh, then he puts the trees in, makes the garden, and he gives Adam this task to cultivate or tend, the Hebrew word abad, and to keep or care for, the Hebrew word shamar, the garden. So he's supposed to abide and shamar the garden. We don't know exactly what that entailed, what kind of work was that, but he was put to work to tend and care for the garden. And then he's told he can eat all these trees. There's this great vast variety of all this stuff he can have, and there's just this one little exception, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He can't eat of that one or he'll die. Um, and then he, there's this uh, description of God bringing all these animals to, uh, uh, to Adam to see what he would name them. So we get um, in Genesis chapter 1 that God says, let us make man in our image. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the special care that he took to make the two, these two creatures, first Adam, and then today we'll see how he made Eve. It's from the dust of the ground. There's a Hebrew word play there with the word ground and the name Adam. They're, they're similar in Hebrew. Uh, and then he makes the, the garden. He takes special care to make a special place for this special creation uh, that he's made. He plants this garden. Uh, the garden in Hebrew is gone. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Paradisos, uh, from which we get the English word paradise. And the Hebrew word Eden, the name of the garden, means delight. So it's a delightful paradise that God made for people. 
Um, and then he talks about the rivers, and we did a little discussion of uh, these rivers that, uh, that they're not, they're most likely reused names, the, the same kind of way that we reuse names in many cases today. Uh, there are many places in the United States that are named after places in England, for example, and they're not the same place, but they're the same name. Uh, most likely that's the case for the rivers described there. Um, and then God puts the uh, man into the, the special place that he prepared. Um, and he was, even before the fall, he was supposed to work. So work is not a result of the fall. It came before the fall. It just became much more difficult um, and dirty and sweaty and nasty uh, after the fall. But there was work before the fall. Um, and he's given uh, one negative command embedded in a giant positive. So he's allowed to eat all these trees and then this one negative command. Uh, And then this final thing that we talked about last time was God parading the animals past Adam. Uh, He he did this for probably a couple of reasons. One is to to show Adam, demonstrate for Adam his delegated authority over the rest of creation. Uh, To name something is a statement of authority over that thing. Uh, And another purpose was to show Adam that these other parts of creation were not suitable as a companion for him. And so we're going to learn uh, this week what what God did about making sure there was a suitable companion for him. But none of the animals, it was obvious to Adam when he saw them that, no, these are not uh, suitable helpers for me. And then we talked about the fact that six day would have been enough time. Um, the, the reasons why it would have been enough time, that uh, he only had to name part of the animal kingdom. There were most likely only a few thousand kinds of animals that he had to name. Uh, and he had plenty of time to do that in day six. So that was last week. Today we're going to continue in our story of uh, the Garden of Eden with um, a couple of things that are going to help us understand the answers to these worldview questions. So um, the, the fundamental thing that we're, we're after here is uh, a true view of the world that we see around us based on the lens of the Bible, so a biblical view of the world. And so everybody has a worldview, and what we're looking for is to conform our worldview to the truths of Scripture. But every worldview answers fundamental questions like, who am I, where do I come from, who's in charge, how should I live my life, and what happens when I die? And so we've talked extensively about who am I, I'm a creature, a created being, made in the image of God. Where do I come from? I come from being created by God uh, directly and immediately from dust, Um, and we're going to see today how Eve was created. Um, And today we're going to focus quite a bit for most of the class on the third question and the fourth question. Who's in charge? The issue of authority. And what, so who's the rule maker? And what rules has he made? Uh, So we're going to take a look quite a bit at those two questions today and the answers to those that the Bible provides. So we've been studying this uh, Genesis chapter 2 and what happens in the garden, and uh, this is the third part of our study of what happened in in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the fact that it's not good for the man to be alone, then God makes Eve to to, uh, deal with that problem, and then institutes marriage. So... The scripture we're going to look at today, uh, starting in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 18. So if you want to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, so you can follow along. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, make him a helper suitable for him. So if you recall in Genesis chapter 1, at the end of each day, God had said, it is good. It is good, it is good, it is good. And here we have... In the middle of day six, God's saying, it is not good for the man to be alone. So there's something that's not good, it's not done, it's not right uh, for, for this man to be alone. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, 
and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so Adam is really excited. I mean, he's had these animals paraded past him. You know, that's an aardvark, and there's a beaver, and there's a cat, and there's a dog, and on and on and on. And now, now here's something to be excited about. He's, he's, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's really excited. God has provided him this suitable helper. So, what do we see? We see it's not good for the man to be alone. So, is that a problem with the... Uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are they out of, out of whack here? God said it was good, and now we're saying it's not good. Well, remember that it's still the middle of day 6. So we haven't gotten to the end of day 6 where God says it's very good. So in the middle of day 6, he's still got this thing to deal with. He's still making things, and he's going to make Eve to take care of this problem that something is not good. And then by the end of day 6, he'll be able to say it's very good. Um, so it's not good. But it's only the middle of day six. He's not done yet. So it's not a problem. So the Spirit merely stated in Genesis chapter 1 that God made men and women in his image. In Genesis 2-7 that we studied last time, we had details of how Adam was made. And now in verses 21 and 22, we get details of how Eve was made. So the Bible says that Eve was fashioned. That's the English translation or built. That The, the word is banah. Uh, in Hebrew. And that Hebrew word here is translated fashioned. In other places of the Bible, it's built. Um, so this same Hebrew word is, for example, is used when Abraham builds or fashions an altar to the Lord. And he does it two different times, and both times it's the same word fashioned an altar to the Lord. The same word is used when Solomon fashions or builds the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. It's this banah. He fashioned a house for the Lord. That's the same Hebrew word that God, the Holy Spirit uses here about fashioning Eve, building Eve. Uh, so he, he, he fashions, uh, he lovingly fashions Eve from one of Adam's ribs, and she's a suitable helper for him. Eve is thus intimately connected with Adam, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, not separately made from dust, but made from Adam. So this also guarantees the unity of mankind under the federal headship of Adam, which is essential to the gospel. So um, we've got a number of different words here when God makes things, and I want to stop here and go over it. So in Genesis um, chapter 1, in one one, for example, God created the heavens and the earth. So God made out of nothing time, space, matter, and energy. The Hebrew word there is bara. He created stuff out of nothing. And then when he forms Adam from the dust, that Hebrew word is yatsar, formed. He formed Adam from the dust, yatsar. And then here, in Genesis chapter 2, it's bana. He fashioned, he deliberately, lovingly fashioned Eve out of Adam's rib. Three different Hebrew words for making things. Bara, created out of nothing, time, space, matter, and energy. Yatsar, formed from the dust for Adam. And Bana, fashioned out of Adam's rib for Eve. Three different ways that God made things here in the creation, described by three different Hebrew words. And it's imp- I think that's important that there's a distinction about how he made things. And the Hebrew is an excellent language for describing these subtleties about what God did. And the Holy Spirit took advantage of the subtleties of the Hebrew language to explain to us uh, the difference in how God made things. Okay, so we're going to take a little detour into genetics. Uh, so... Um, Put on your thinking caps. So, human genome. So, uh, the human genome is made up of 23 chromosome pairs. So, 46 chromosomes all together. Uh, in, in your, every molecule in your body, every uh, cell in your body, I'm sorry, uh, you have DNA. So, every single person here has uh, human genome of DNA in every single cell of your body. 
And in every single cell of your body, you get one uh, chromosome one from your mother and one chromosome one from your father. One chromosome two from your mother and one chromosome two from your father and so on and so on through each of the chromosome pairs. And then something special happens in chromosome pair, uh, chromosome pair number 23. So in chromosome pair number 23, everyone gets an X chromosome from their mother. Everyone. And then you get either a Y chromosome or an X chromosome from your father for your chromosome pair number 23. If you get a Y chromosome from your father, then you are a man. And every single cell in your body has this, this human genome, this, your own genome, that tells you you are a man. If you get an X chromosome from your father, then you are a woman. And every single cell in your body tells you that you're a woman. Every single cell. It doesn't matter if you chop body parts off. Every single cell in your body tells you whether you are a man or a woman. That's how God designed us. And he put that, that imprint in every single cell in your body. So there is no doubt for every single person that walks the planet, whether you're a man or a woman. And as I said, you can chop off all the body parts you want, and you're still a man or a woman. That's how God designed us. And science is startlingly clear about this issue. So, um, there are, uh, you have different kinds of cells in your body. There are haploid cells in your body where you only have half. Those are uh, your reproductive cells. Uh, eggs for a woman, sperm for a man has only one of each one of the chromosome pairs. So that when they come together, they can form a pair for each one. Those are called haploid cells. Uh, diploid cells are the rest of the somatic cells, the rest of the cells in your body all have these uh, 40, the 23 pairs or 46 chromosomes. Uh, there are about 6 billion base pairs in human genome, about 60,000 genes. And so, um, and, and there's actually a different number of genes if you're a man or a woman because uh, this X chromosome has about 1,846 genes on it. And this little itty bitty Y chromosome only has about 454 uh, genes on it. And so uh, women actually have more genes than men. I don't know what the, uh, the total implications of that. Those women who are married may, uh, may have some ideas about uh, their, their husband being short of a few, uh, a few genes. Uh, but that's a fact. Um, and, and this actually plays out in a number of different ways. So as I said, every cell in your body if you're a female, is a female cell. And, um, and we're just learning that that makes a difference in things like female liver cells and female kidney cells are different from male kidney cells and male liver cells. Um, it makes a difference in drug testing, for example, because when they do drug, drug testing, they usually do it on one, uh, one line of uh, DNA, and it could be either a male DNA or a female DNA. Does it and play into organ transplants? So it does play into organ transplants, although it doesn't necessarily mean it won't be a match. Uh, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that have to match for, for an organ transplant. They have to do with all the, the, the DNA. Um, but it does make a difference. And it makes a difference in, in drug trials and, and in drug dosage as well. And it's uh, so. Uh, drug dosage is determined by body weight in many cases, and, and in most cases, the average uh, female is, is, it has a lower body mass than the average man. But that's not the only thing. Uh, the liver, uh, a woman's liver and kidney, process different chemicals at different rates than a male kidney or a male liver because of the difference in the genome. Uh, we've just recently learned that. Uh, that it matters whether you do a drug trial on a, on, a, on a male set of DNA or a female set of DNA. When you say just recently. Uh, the article I pulled was from uh, 2013, and it was fairly new in 2013. 
Okay, and so God has done this. This is how God has designed things, and he's designed things so that we know at a cellular level whether a person is a man or a woman. Not just by how you look on the outside, but every single cell in your body is either male or female. Uh, for, a, for a male, every single, every single cell in my body has an X and a Y as the 23rd chromosome pair. Every single cell in my wife's body has an X and an X as the 23rd chromosome pair. Um, uh, you know, every skin cell, every brain cell, every heart cell, every lung cell, every single one of them. And so you can see that it just, you know, chopping off a body part is, doesn't change any of that. It does not change any of that. That's what God has done to make sure we know that there's this, he's made us male and female. He's made us male and female all the way down to a cellular level. Go ahead. What you're saying then is God took this rib out of Adam and the fashioning part meant every single cell inside that rib or tissue, whatever it was, had to be re-engineered. Yeah, and so uh, you, can only, you can imagine, I mean, we can have to imagine that he could have just duplicated Adam's X. That's all he would need to do. Duplicate Adam's X and make an X and an X instead of an X. But he had to do that. He did have to get rid of the Y. That's right. He did have to do that. Yes, so he did something at a genetic level to make men and women different. He had to change that rib and every cell that he made around the rib uh, for Eve so that the 23rd chromosome pair was an X and an X instead of an X and a Y. Yeah, so, uh, so since the fall... There have been genetic diseases, and the genetic diseases will affect many of the chromosomes, including there are some that affect the reproductive chromosomes as well. Yes, since the fall, there have been, there are all kinds of problems with the genome. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to Genesis 10 and 11, but, but yeah, the fall, so every generation, so we, we've been able to map the human genome and, and do some studies of um, rates of degradation of the human genome, if you will. And uh, the rates, the, the, the currently known rates are about 300 new point mutations per generation. So every generation there's about 300 copy mistakes for each person, each generation. So there are about 6 billion base pairs, and so 300 is a, you know, a relatively small amount for each generation, but they keep accumulating. They keep accumulating generation after generation after generation after generation. So um, after, so the, the human genome is breaking down. Uh, the human genome, there's, a, there's a, an outstanding copying error check system in the cell. We don't have time to really go over that, but there is. God put in a system to try to uh, uh, prevent copying mistakes. And so most copying mistakes are caught, but some copying mistakes, uh, they make it into the, the reproductive cells, which then are passed on to the next generation, about 300-point mutations per generation. And so, those, and, and so some of, most of those generations, most of those uh, copying mistakes are what's called um, uh, nearly neutral, just uh, they're slightly, they call them slightly deleterious mutations, slightly deleterious mutations. And so... Most of them cause some kind of harm, but not much, not much harm. Not enough to kill you or to have, make you have any kind of major problem. But some of them cause major problems. Uh, and some of them, you know, cause death, it's death before birth, um, uh, many abnormalities following birth. And we call those birth defects or genetic defects that manifest themselves sometimes. Those are the results of the fall, the fact that the genome is decaying. Um, and some of those, yes, yeah, so there are a very small amount uh, of people that have abnormalities in these reproductive chromosomes that causes um, very unusual things to happen. Yes, go ahead. That God put in um, like a redundancy check, or even if there is an X, Y, X, or XXX, X, X, or something like this, you, you can still tell if it's a man or a woman. Like, even with those um, defects, God has made um, a way for you, 
you're not going to become like half man, half woman situation. God has redundancy built in where you can figure out who you are, even with those like defects in your gene. And most people who have the intersex, they have no idea that they have those gene deformalities. They're just living as a man or woman because those characteristics have come out even despite these errors. And it was really interesting listening to this. If you want to listen to that, go to yeah, the other thing is it's a, it's a very, very, very tiny fraction of the human population, um, like handfuls across the entire planet um, with these kind of abnormalities. Well, yes, yes, so, yes, so this, is, this has not been any kind of a controversy until about five minutes ago, and now it's, <laughs> now it's a big controversy, but, uh, but I find it interesting that God put this kind of thing at the cellular level that people didn't know about for, you know, the first 5,000, 6,000 years of human history, and now, when it becomes a controversy, we also get this discovery that God has put an imprint on the cells to show whether we're men or women, um, you know, e- even if people want to try to obscure their physical appearance, God has still put this into the cells. Uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just putting this out there because we're in a classroom at birth. Their child was um, formed in a way that it could go either way, and the doctor looked at them and said, you need to choose which way, and so then the young Christian is saying, so you don't know that the the parent could have made the wrong choice, and that's why this is happening, they're choosing this sexual thing. I'm just putting it out there because other people might not know that this is a conversation. Yeah. So yes, there are there are consequences of the fall that are far and wide-reaching, including uh, genetic defects, and so we have to be compassionate about that. However, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent about of this LGBTQ controversy has nothing to do with a genetic defect. Nothing to do with a genetic defect. These are just people making choices now. If, it, if there is, in fact, a genetic defect, then that's a, that's a tragedy. That's a tragic result of the fall um, and, and worthy of compassion, uh, a very difficult situation. However, um, the, the, the scientific facts are that that's a vanishingly tiny percentage of the population. Not zero, but but very, very, very small. Nothing like the numbers that we see of people that are going in for transition surgery by the thousands, for example. Uh, that has nothing to do with any kind of genetic abnormality in the vast majority of cases. So uh, what I would say is you need to get the facts. So if you actually have a friend that has a child with a chromosome abnormality, a genetic abnormality, then, of course, you don't want to berate that person. You don't want to berate the person in any case. But, um, but you do want to compassionately interact with that person. And eventually, you want to be able to get around to the point where you can lovingly explain to the person that that is one of the effects of the fall. That, that the fall in Genesis 3 is the reason why the child has a genetic abnormality. Yes, okay. Uh, good, good, uh, good thought, yes. A Down syndrome person with X and Y chromosomes. The missing one or so a Down syndrome is a genetic abnormality. I don't remember which chromosome it has to do with. I don't think it's a reproductive chromosome, but um, it is a genetic abnormality. And there are a number of them that, uh, you know, there's fragile X syndrome, there's uh, Down syndrome, there's a number of things that have special scientific names that are genetic defects. And they cause usually some kind of significant harm to the person that has that genetic abnormality. Um, 
many genetic abnormalities result in death uh, in, in before birth. Uh, many do. Uh, yes? Is it an extra? An extra, so a Down syndrome is an extra chromosome. Yeah, it's not the starting point for sure. Yeah, it's not the starting point for sure. Yep. Yeah. So that's right. So that's it's important for you to know that um, that, that that this is a consequence of the fall. That if we're looking at the world through a biblical lens, the reason why we have genetic abnormalities is because of the fall. Now, uh, a parent of a child that has a genetic abnormality, uh, that that's a great point. That that's not where you want to start the conversation. Uh, that's not where you want to start the conversation. But uh, if you know, if you've gotten to know the person well enough, and you've gotten, and they ask you a question, why is this happening? And you and you feel the Holy Spirit is telling you, okay, that's your opening to explain uh, the Bible. And so, if you want to give the gospel, you have to be able to talk about sin and the consequences of sin uh, at some point. Uh, but yes, I wouldn't lead with that. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. <clears throat> kind of normal to have these kinds of conversations and you know we talked about some of this and some of that um, you can go to the New Testament and see the disciples had the same conversation why was this man born blind yep. was it because his father sinned or his mother sinned yep. and, and Jesus said neither at that point and, yep. and you know that was a point where Jesus didn't go back to Genesis yeah. and say hey you know it was his <laughs> right so yeah so there's a distinction here um, not every problem that we face is a direct result of our sin. So yes, I certainly wouldn't say you would tell the parents, you, you sinned and made your child have a genetic to, to abnormality. That's the kind of thing that the disciples were asking Jesus. Um, no, 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 no. The Bible does not teach that, that because the parents sinned, it, you know, that's why their child, no. It's a, it's a, but every, every, um, everything in the world that's broken is a result of the fall. Everything that's broken. At the end of creation, God said it was very good. And God is an all-powerful, all-good God that said everything was very good. So everything was perfect when he made it. There were no defects. There were no defects in Adam and Eve's genome. Not one. But now there are. There are all kinds of problems. And th this is just one of them. Uh, there's, everything is broken in, in the world. And, the, and that's the result of Adam's sin. Right? Not any particular person's sin after that can be tied directly to, one, uh, to any particular problem. Now, in some cases, yes, a sin, <laughs> my sin leads to some specific problem sometimes. But Jesus pointing out that that's not always the case, that you can trace a particular problem to one particular sin that one particular person had. No. And so I would definitely not go to a parent and tell them, hey, your child is uh, sick because uh, you're a bad person. No, that's not, that's not the way, what we want to do. Yeah. Um, Jesus goes on to say, this, is, this happened before I find and then mm -hmm. the guy. Yep. Is it fair for us to say, because of the sovereignty of God, that every one of these defects that we're being talked about exists to glorify God. So, yes, you may eventually get to that if you have a, a, a discussion in theodicy. Theodicy is a problem of evil, uh, that, that God has a morally sufficient reason for every bit of evil that he allows. Um, and that is something, I was talking to Doug before the class, that we get some glimpses of this in, in the Bible. So, uh, the greatest injustice, the greatest evil that was ever done in the history of creation was the murder of Jesus on the cross. How did that turn out? That turned out for our good and God's glory. And so if God can turn that evil into good, then I, I trust, I have faith that God has a morally sufficient reason for every other amount of evil that he allows. Because remember, 
the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. So if some piece of evil exists in the world, it's because he allows it. Because he's all-powerful and he's sovereign and he, he could have stopped that evil. So uh, the book of Job tells us that he does not owe us an explanation. Uh, so Job does not get an explanation. Uh, but we get a glimpse of it when we read the book of Job. We see the discussion between Adam and Satan at the beginning of the book of Job and the fact that uh, this whole story is in the Bible, and it's for our good that it's recorded in the Bible. And so there's a good, morally sufficient reason why God allowed that. But when Job demands an explanation from God for why these things are happening to him, he gets, a, he gets God on blast, saying, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I set up its foundations? In other words, God tells Job, I'm God, and you're not. Stay in your lane. Um, and he never gets an explanation. Read, read the book of Job. All the way to the end, Job never gets. He doesn't tell him, well, I, Satan came to me. and he, No, he doesn't give any kind of an explanation. And he and he's very forcefully tells Job, I owe you no explanation because I'm God and you're not. You have to have faith uh, and trust that I am God and, uh, and I'm good and, uh, and I have a plan and I have a reason for the things that I do. Uh, and so that's what the Bible teaches about theodicy, uh, the problem of evil. Uh, yeah. So, and eventually you may get to a discussion like that with an unbeliever. Um, but, and so we need to have that firmly in our mind. We have to understand this, the problem of theodicy and what the real answer is. Uh, God is never the author of evil, but God in his sovereignty allows certain evil for his own reasons and purposes, and he has a morally sufficient reason for every single example. Uh, there's an example in Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph, his, his brothers come, and Joseph, the, the brothers are terrified after the death of Jacob that Joseph's going to take revenge on them, and Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so, obviously, God is not the author of the evil there. It's the, bro the evil brothers who threw Joseph into a pit, sold him into slavery, a genuine evil. Uh, but Joseph, at the end of his life, can see that God meant that for good. He saved everybody, right? There was a big famine, and so they, went, they were able to go down and, and have food in, in the land of Egypt. Uh, so God meant that for good. The brothers meant it for evil. God used the evil actions of evil men for a good purpose, and he does it all the time. He used the evil actions of evil men in the crucifixion of Jesus for a good purpose. He does it all the time. And so when this happens in our lives, we have to be able to hold on to the fact that Scripture explains this to us, that God uses the evil actions of evil men for good purposes. And we have faith that he will do that for me, just like he did it for Joseph, and just like he did it in the case of, of Christ on the cross. Yes. Uh, I was say that, yes, there. He meant it for good. He didn't use it for good. He meant it meaning he had planned it. He didn't just take the bad plan that somebody had Right, right. Yes, sir. Yeah. It. He meant it for good. Correct. So God, God had that plan all along. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and so now we get marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. The last two verses of Genesis 2 tell us about marriage. So marriage, Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. So God instituted marriage here in Genesis chapter 2, and Jesus was asked about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, and so Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 2. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So they're coming to him, testing him, so they're trying to catch him, um, and so they go straight to divorce. Um, and Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Matthew chapter 19. So those are Jesus' thoughts on marriage. And Jesus goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 to explain this is how God set it up from the very beginning. So, uh, God institutes marriage. He, he's, first of all, he, he sees a, a problem, something that's not complete, not good for the man to be alone. Then he makes Eve a suitable helper for him, and God brings her to the man. So this is God's action all along the way, noticing something that's not complete or not right, Then he makes Eve, and then he brings her to the man. God, 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 God. All actions of God. It's the first institution which God created, and and Jesus points out that it's from the beginning. From the beginning. Uh, Not later on, but from the beginning. Jesus said God has has joined together. Notice that. that. That when Jesus talks about marriage, he says that that's an action of God to join those people together. God has joined together. Uh, Martin, I, I got a quote from Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, all the way at the end of his life, this is one of the very last things he wrote. He wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis. Um, and this is a quote from that commentary. It is God's order and institution that a man and a woman should unite in marriage in a proper way, which Moses here in the book of Genesis here indicates by saying that the Lord God, that is God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, brought the woman to the man. Let us therefore learn from these words to defend marriage against the wicked blasphemies of those who revile it. It is something very wonderful that God instituted holy wedlock in the state of innocence. Martin Luther in his commentary on Genesis, page 60. So um, this is God's good institution of marriage. God did this. Uh, for our good, and he did it before the fall. Um, And so before there was any sin in the world, there was marriage, uh, and God instituted it. God also defines marriage. So he instituted it, and he defines it. Uh, Note that God instituted marriage when there were only two people on the earth, Adam and Eve. So there were no countries, there were no societies, there were no cultures when God instituted marriage. Therefore, marriage is not a political or social or cultural institution at its foundation. So marriage was instituted before all of these things. It was not developed by any country or society or culture. Rather, all cultures, societies, and countries are built on the foundation of God's design for the family. So it's the other way around. It's the family as the foundation for these other things. It's not these other things that created the family. We, that comes out very clearly in Scripture, and if we're to have a biblical worldview, we need to see it that way. We need to see it that way, and we need to live as if this is actually true. What God has told us is actually true. And we need to furthermore be able to explain this to our unbelieving friends, the fact that God made marriage before there were any countries or societies or cultures. So God, as our creator, has the authority to set rules. So this is an important worldview question. Who has the authority to make rules, and what rules have they made? God, as our creator, he made us, and so therefore he has authority over us to set rules. No government or society or culture has the authority to set aside God's rules in any area, not just for marriage. But in this particular case, we're talking about marriage, but um, the, the government is not our creator. Society is not our creator. Culture is not our creator. The God of the Bible 
is our creator. So as our creator, he has authority over his creation. Uh, The New Testament puts it this way. uh, A pot is not going to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Um, That's the analogy that the New Testament makes. As the creator, the potter has authority over the pot. In the same way, our creator, the one who made us, the one who Yatsar formed Adam from the dust, Bana fashioned Eve from the rib of, of Adam, has authority to do what he wants and make rules for his creation. Um, and so and, and the government doesn't have authority to change God's rules. And so uh, it's important to get this point down, I think. So Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7 tell us about how we're supposed to submit to government authorities. They, have, they bear the sword in order to punish evil. But I want you to do this sometime. Read Romans 13, 1-7, and see if you can find anywhere in there where God gives government authority or permission to define what good and evil are. And I, I assure you that it's not in there, that the government does not have the authority to decide what's evil. They have the authority to punish what's evil, but they don't have the authority to decide what's good and what's evil. Who has the authority to decide what's good and what's evil? God and God alone has the authority to decide what's good and evil. The government has been instituted by God, civil government instituted by God, for the purpose of punishing evil, but they have not been delegated the authority to decide what is evil. Only God has that authority, and he didn't delegate it. Read Romans 13, 1-7. He didn't delegate to the government to decide what's good or evil, but to punish what God has already determined is evil. Very important. Okay, so who has authority? Who is it that has authority? In Matthew 28, we get this. Uh, this is the risen Christ, the, right before he ascends up into heaven. But the eleven disciples proceed to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So who has authority? The risen Christ has authority, and he, and he comes right out and very explicitly says, all authority. All authority where? All authority in heaven. Where else? All authority in earth, given to me. Um, and then he gives the Great Commission. But that's the setup for the Great Commission. All authority, heaven and earth, given to me. The risen Christ, who has authority. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now this is John speaking. John is the person, the one person who knew Jesus Jesus the man better than anyone who ever lived. John his close and intimate friend who had been with him for three years, eating around the campfire, John, when he sees the risen Christ in all his glory, falls on his face like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So this is the risen Christ. Um, and he has authority. Uh, he has the keys of death and Hades. Uh, the risen Christ, who has authority. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, who has authority, the risen Christ, who is also our creator. Very explicitly, the New Testament explains that Jesus is our creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, our creator, the Christ, the risen Christ, our creator. For by him all things are created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So who has authority? The risen Christ, our creator. And so the Bible is really clear about this point. Who has authority? And so it's one of the key worldview questions. Who has authority? Who's in charge? Who can make the rules? And so this is one of the fundamental things that we need to get right to have a biblical worldview. And when we're talking to an unbeliever that does not have this perspective, that doesn't understand that the risen Christ is sovereign over all things, has authority over all things, and has authority to make rules, then they'll always get everything wrong, everything from there wrong. They'll misunderstand who has the authority to make rules. They'll say, well, why shouldn't people just love whoever they want to love? Or why shouldn't people just decide they want to be a man or a woman? Well, this is the reason. Because the risen Christ has said otherwise. And and he has he's the one that has the authority to say, to make rules, and no government or society or culture has the authority to uh to contradict his rules. That's why. That's why you can't love whoever you want, marry whoever you want, and be whoever you want, because the one who made us has said otherwise. Now, we need to be we need to have a, a winning manner and a loving way of saying those things. Um, but we need to have that as a firm foundation of our worldview before we can go help another. We, we need to make sure that we know what to teach to the other person that has a confusion about who's in charge. Okay, so God also made regulations for marriage. Yes, go ahead. Uh, one thing that's tied back to what you mentioned before, um, when Joe is struggling with the suffering of his life, the problem of evil, and God steps in straight, it's an authority issue that God yep. corrects yep. by a walkthrough of creation where God will and Joe will Yep. And I really like that. I know, I don't have a better term for it. I know it's a smackdown when, when the Lord is doing that with Job. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's the creator describing his creation mm-hmm. as he did it. And there's a grace to that, too, where yep. Job got invited into seeing something. And then a course correct of, I'm the creator with authority, you are not. Yep. So I just thought it was interesting because it's all tied in in the same way. Yeah, good point. And so when you're talking to an unbeliever, one of the things that you, you need to make sure they understand is, yeah, I, I didn't make these rules. Uh, I, I'm just telling you what the one. The, I'm telling you the one who did, who does have the authority, what he, what rules he has made. Um, it, it, and so, uh, a lot of unbelievers, when you talk about these issues, will say, "Well, that's just your opinion," or, or "Why are you trying to, you know, force your morality on me?" Well, I'm not. I, I'm just, I'm, I didn't make these rules. The, these are the rules of the one who actually has authority to make the rules. Yes, Larry. I think you need to follow that with um, an answer to so what. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that's the rules. Yeah, so this is all a foundation for the gospel. So they're... God made the rules. There are consequences to disobeying the rules. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 3. And God has made a way of redemption uh, to redeem mankind from the results of the fall. Um, but if you just tell them that uh, Jesus died for your sins, then 
they'll say, well, what's sin, and uh, why, sh- why does Jesus dying for it uh, have anything to do with me? Um, and so there, you have to have a, a foundation, I think. And so uh, what we're trying to lay down here, especially in Genesis 2 and Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, is the foundation for why, why do we need a Savior in the first place? And why is Jesus a sufficient uh, sacrifice for my sins? Um, and all that ties in to this foundation we're laying here in Genesis 1 through 3. Yes? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, excellent point. So uh, the, the, I think the fundamental issue is that uh, secular worldview has seeped into the church in many instances. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, so, and we need to be uh, gracious and loving in the way we talk to not only unbelievers but other believers. And so one of the reasons why we do class like this in the church is because we have people in the church who don't necessarily have a biblical worldview. Um, and, and oh, by the way, that's, um, um, you know, everybody starts somewhere. Everybody was an unbeliever and then became a believer. And the instant you become a believer, it doesn't change um, everything that you have previously learned as an unbeliever. Um, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be uh, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, and that's a process. Uh, for every believer. There's a process of sanctification. And so you're not going to automatically be infused, in my experience, with a complete biblical worldview just because you have been justified. The day you're justified, you don't automatically, boom, have a 100% biblical view of the world. You need to study and learn, and you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's a process. And... um, in many cases in the church, I'm just talking in a broad, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, we haven't always done a good job of discipling new believers such that we inculcate in them a biblical worldview, a complete biblical worldview. So they have been justified, but then they're not immediately by a discipleship process uh, you know, starting the race uh, of sanctification uh, and 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 coming to a biblical worldview in in some cases, and so yes, we have to be aware of that, alert to that, and try to uh, disciple a person so that they can be renewed by the uh, be transformed by the renewing of their mind. So back to uh, God's regulation of marriage. So God made marriage exclusive. Each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. First Corinthians chapter seven. Being the husband of one wife is a requirement for church leadership, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, Matthew 5, Hebrews 13. Uh, So God made marriage exclusive on purpose. 
God made marriage permanent in this life. Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew chapter 19. Paul explains that a marriage lasts until one of the spouses dies. Romans chapter 7. Malachi 2 comes right out and says, God hates divorce. So, of course, in, in our fallen world, divorce is a reality. And we have people in the church, of course, that have been divorced. Um, however, the Bible makes really clear what God's attitude is towards divorce. So, um, and of course, God hates all sin. Uh, but we have this particular verse in Malachi chapter 2 that says, comes right out and says, God hates divorce, very harsh. Um, and so what do we do with people within the church that have divorced? Well, we, we love those uh, people, and we, we, we understand that they have experienced a heart-wrenching tragedy uh, in their lives. Uh, but God's design for marriage is exclusive and permanent. Uh, God made marriage for certain purposes. He gave purpose to marriage. Uh, marriage is to propagate the human race. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he tells Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. He repeats that command to Noah and his family that when they come off the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeat, repeats that command after the flood. When Noah comes out, he makes sure that Noah understands that he is supposed to do the same thing, same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. He gives to Noah and his family when they come off the ark. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Not only to fill the earth, but also subdue it and rule over it. He tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, and he also repeats the same thing in, in uh, um, Genesis chapter 9, 1 and 2, coming off the ark. So also to pass on a godly legacy by teaching God's word diligently within the family, Deuteronomy chapter 6. God made marriage to give us a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. A wife is to be subject to her husband as the church is to Christ, Ephesians 5.24. So for a husband is Christ first, in accordance with Matthew chapter 22, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. And then his wife. For a wife... It is Christ first, in accordance with Matthew chapter 22, and then her husband. So it's the same. For a husband, Christ first, then his wife. For a wife, Christ first, then her husband. This is what the scripture teaches and uses it as an analogy for Christ and the church. So, uh, God defines marriage. This is what we learned. God defines marriage, one man and one woman. God regulates marriage, exclusive and permanent. God gives purpose to marriage, dominion, and analogy to Christ and the church. So what did we learn today? We learned it is not good for the man to be alone. We learned that God created Eve to solve that problem, and God instituted marriage as well, and this all happened before the fall, and when there were only two people in the world, no governments or societies or cultures. Any questions? We have uh, four minutes. Four Four minutes to. You asked a lot of good questions already. Go ahead. Uh, I just popped into my head to extend the analogy of uh, Christ and the church and us as members of the church. It's good for us not to be alone, and therefore we should be a member of a church. Yes. So God created us as social beings in his image. So he had fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us to crave and need fellowship as well. One of those ways that he uh, fulfills that need is by marriage. Another way he fulfills that need is spiritually with the church. And so that's the model that God has for believers in the New Testament is believers are supposed to be members of a local church. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good thought that, yeah, we do need to reach the youth. And, and we, but we need to, in the context of uh, discipleship, so discipleship uh, should be happening in our uh, in our church in many different settings, not just teaching in a class, but one on one. And one of the things that we need to make sure that we're doing when we're discipling uh, younger believers is making sure that we inculcate a biblical worldview that they see the world through the lens of the scripture, the truths of the scripture. Um, and that's something that 
if you're a discipler, so everybody should be a discipler and being discipled. Every single person, every single follower of Christ should have somebody that's pouring into their lives and discipling them, and you should be pouring into the lives of somebody else, somebody that's not as far along the walk as, as you are. And one of the things that you need to do in that context is make sure that they have an understanding of these foundational elements of a biblical worldview. I think as much as possible you need to be able to go to Scripture, not your own opinion, this is not what I think, this is what God said. So that, that's, I think that's the first step. Make sure that you know the Scriptures well enough that you can say, this is what God said. And so then if they're arguing against it, they're very explicit. You're making explicit that they're arguing against God. Not against me. It's not what I said. Here's this, the Scripture passage. This is what God said. Not my opinion, not what I say. This is what God said. That's the first step. Now, yeah, so yeah, so to a certain extent, yeah, God's law is written on the hearts of men. And so when you, when you give God's law and God's words, it can resonate even but for people that are resisting. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, that'll have to be the last word. We've come to the end of our time. Let's uh, close in prayer.